The following episode of the Movie Club podcast can and will contain spoilers. Please be aware of this before you listen. Thank you. Let me tell you something. This is the 1990s, all right? In this day and age, a man has to have choices. A man has to have a little bit of variety. What are you talking about, variety? Hostages? You want to fuck some other women now? Is that what you're talking about, Mickey? Why'd you pick me up? Why'd you take me out of my fucking house and kill my parents with me? Ain't you committed to me? Where are we fucking going? Just relax, all right? It's me, your lover, not some demon, not your father, all right? Relax. No, you're not my fucking lover. You're not my fucking... You've been loving me. You've been fucking loving me. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us once again for the Movie Club podcast, the podcast where we choose two movies and dissect them, analyze them, get into the nitty gritty. And uh, this is episode number 14. This time around, we're talking about Natural Born Killers and Chopper, kind of a serial killer theme going on there. Um, The website just to get it out of the way is movieclubpodcast.com so when you're done listening to this head there uh, let us know your own comments on these movies Um, let's go around the table and introduce all the participants my name is Sean from filmjunk.com my name is Kurt from row3.com and twitchfilm.net my name is Jay from filmjunk.com and thedocumentaryblog.com and I'm Andrew from row3 and if we're lucky, we may have another uh, another guest joining us, uh, Marina, who is uh, tied up in traffic, maybe joining us. We'll On see. On the left coast. Yeah, which, uh, you know, it's always good to have the, the female perspective in there. Uh, so uh, I guess we'll start with Natural Born Killers. Now, this one was the one that was voted on by listeners, right? I believe. I yep, think I so. Right. So um, 1994 release uh directed by oliver stone um now i don't remember who actually suggested this originally do you guys remember probably uh, me yeah i think it might have been me yeah all right well um why don't you set this up for us why why did you want to talk about natural born killers great put me on the spot right away <laughs> um or we'll just we'll talk s- about the movie itself <laughs> just a little synopsis or something yeah, well, uh, for me personally, this is a movie that, for whatever reason, uh, in college, freshman year of college, actually, uh, this one guy, like, three floors up in our dorm, watched it, like, every day. <laughs> so <laughs> we'd go up there and, um, you know, hang out and watch Natural Born Killers. So I saw it, like, probably ten times just my freshman year of college, and I really grew to love it. And I hadn't seen it for quite a while, and I just thought that this seemed like a really out there kind of movie with lots of different things to tackle, lots of ins and outs and what have yous. And, uh, you know, just sounded like a good one for the show that we could all dissect and get into. Also, I thought it would be probably pretty divisive. Um, as I was looking today, I just went to the IMDb to go on the boards a little bit and see what other people were said, and it was basically one person saying this movie sucks ass and then the next movie saying this movie is genius so uh yeah it's a pretty divisive film too yeah and i i personally love it so well yeah there's definitely a lot of difference of opinion it's 
it was a pretty controversial movie when it was released too. Um, what were your guys uh, kind of initial thoughts on natural born killers? Like, obviously I don't think anybody was watching this for the first time, but um, Kurt, what, uh, well, I saw it in when it came out theatrically because uh, we were huge fans of at the time of well and still of Reservoir Dogs and uh, I believe it was Pulp Fiction was out at that point uh, or maybe it was Reservoir Dogs and True Romance um, that had you know Quentin Tarantino was starting to build for a name build a name for himself and he was the uh, well. I thought he was the screenwriter, but apparently he he's just the initial story because I, I don't know how well published this was at the time, but um, Oliver Stone brought in new writers and sort of took the straight up genre story that he had and tried to rewrite it as a topical piece. But I didn't know any of that in 94. Uh, we went because of Quentin Tarantino's name and because it was Woody from Cheers as like a badass when at in 94... He was the goofy, friendly, aw shucks, hick kind of character. And this was totally at odds with anything that he had done. Um, And I hated the movie. Hated it when I saw it. It was just too in your face. It it seemed to be saying that the media sucks and is the problem for violence and, 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 and all these sort of social ills. Yet it actually indulges in that ten times worse than anything that it was critiquing um and so i just sort of never really revisited the movie uh but watching it this time i actually really liked it i i thought you know the way to do satire is to take something and push it to the extreme so i got it more as a satire rather than a political um a much more uh finger wagging um I'm not a big fan of Oliver Stone to begin with, and I guess that probably clouded my judgment. So this time around, and we'll talk about it later, but I actually, I was into the vibe of of the movie, and I think I appreciated a lot more of how it gave its message this time around rather than it being like hypocritical, which is my take the first time. Right. Well, actually, I was kind of the opposite of you, which is that when I saw it originally, I, I remember liking this movie a lot and it had been, you know, a long time since I saw it. And when I sat down to watch it again, I was kind of, I don't know, like it was, it, it had uh, a lot of cool scenes in it, but it was definitely, I kind of got turned off by how loud it was and just in your face. And which is weird. Cause I mean, I don't know why I didn't remember all that stuff originally, but, uh, Jay, you, uh, you were a fan of this back when it first came out, I believe, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm probably in a similar situation as Kurt. I'd seen it in the theaters, and um, which is weird thinking because I would have been 15, so yeah. I don't. I must have snuck in or something because um, I'm assuming this wasn't 14A. Well, actually, that's I don't know what it would have been here in Canada. It was definitely rated R in the u.s mm-hmm. but um yeah that's a, that's a good question I, I don't think i ever saw it in the theaters i think i caught it on dvd but um and yeah i liked it a lot at the time i i remember doing because we used to make uh short films on the weekends and do stuff for school projects and this is one of the many films that were out and popular at the time that 
ended up seeping into the uh, movies that we were making <laughs> at the time. Right. Um, yeah, it's kind of weird uh, watching this now because I mean, I don't. I, yeah, I don't remember if Pulp Fiction came out before this, or I guess it was the same year, right? Ninety four. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it's weird to think that this was out in the theaters in a wide release and, and like, I can't really picture this being released now in, in, in theaters everywhere. You know what I mean? Like it's a pretty kind of experimental and strange film to be, uh, sort of a mainstream release. And I think back now to what kind of was going on in the, the mid nineties there with Pulp Fiction and Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez. And there was kind of an interesting, uh, you know, just this wave of independent film really overtaking cinema at the time, which was pretty cool. But I think that this JFK helped get people used to this type of filmmaking from Oliver Stone. Because with that movie, he really indulged in the different film stocks and black and white and um, not to the, the level that he does in Natural Born Killers, but... I, I think that helped pave the way. And, th- and then he did, uh, was the one with Sean Penn and Jennifer Lopez, U5, or not U571. <laughs> no, U-turn, yeah, U-Turn was way after, was it not? Yeah, it was a wh- I think it was a while after, but it, it was like still using that similar technique. Right. I, I think it was, I remember seeing that and thinking, okay, he's trying to go back to the natural born killers well, because I think it was after Nixon, possibly, and even Nixon not to the same degree, but use that type of filmmaking. But that's what I love most about this movie is, is if it wasn't, if Robert, uh, Robert Richardson, Robert Richardson wasn't involved in this film as a cinematographer. And I guess throughout Oliver Stone's career, he's done a good majority of his films. I don't think it would have worked as well because he's got this, it's basically him not holding back at all. And he gets pretty out there even in straightforward films with people's like hair backlit so heavily that it looks like their heads are on fire and like giant pools of massive light on, on floors and tables and his style lends itself perfectly to this film. And, And I always found it funny that Quentin Tarantino hated what Oliver Stone did to uh, Natural Born Killers, but ended up working with Robert Richardson for down the road on Kill Bill and now on Inglorious Bastards. And obviously he's enjoyed his work uh, with Oliver Stone. Well, yeah, I wonder if Tarantino maybe would have changed his mind on this film now because it it does seem like something like, you know, I remember a couple of years ago him saying that... um, Domino was like one of his favorite films and it seems very in that vein. I'm glad you brought that up because you said it's kind of baffling how natural born killers got a wide release. Well, one, I believe it was a studio film and I don't, you know, again, he had his, it's like Michael Haneke taking all of his cachet money or, or credibility and making remaking his own funny games, which is a rub the nose kind of in the audience that he's showing it to. But the two modern equivalents of Natural Born Killers would be Domino and Southland Tales, actually both written by Richard Kelly. Um, and they have all that sort of visual and uh, plotting, 
you know, indulgences that, that they just try. They're actually trying to mirror the culture subjectively while you watch the movie. Uh, like, you know, it's, it's not so much that natural born killers is against the media. It's more of it's against how, or it's trying to articulate to who watches it, how you process media. And it does that by offering you a heightened experience as if like, you know, it's, it's so I always said that about, uh, Southland Tales uh, is that it, it's a movie that tries to replicate the experience of channel surfing and people say well it was a mess and it was flabby and it didn't make a lot of sense well sitting there clicking channels doesn't make a lot of sense either but people do it and there's a rhythm to that and I mean in hindsight I guess Natural Born Killers is a bit more coherent with the storytelling it wants to do in the themes and Mickey and Mallory Knox's you know journey into the media and eventually transcending the media uh it's a little bit more coherent but the the way the story is told when you're in the middle of it i mean he must change film stocks and visual techniques and the same scene will replay almost like from a like right at the beginning of the film when they're in the bar and you you know you don't know these characters yet he orders a piece of pie she starts dancing um and some cowboy guys or, you know, whatever locals come into the bar, they say one thing, but then a second later you, you get them behaving radically different and almost saying the same thing, but more aggressively as if to say, this is an objective reality. And this is how Mickey and Mallory Knox or whatever are viewing it. They even do it with the waitress. Like the first time she says, um, you should try the pie. And then the second time it's, you should try the pie, honey. You know, like it's, 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 it's a very, like the, it's, it's always almost, the the cut in to the sixteen millimeter black and white kind of slow mo of someone giving a s- sort of sly look or right. I, I think the they actually do have rules set up like I think they're it's not random um there seems to be a formula to what he's doing with all of that stuff but but yeah, like flipping through uh different formats like I know the scene where they're on the bridge and they do their wedding um Right in that scene, they go like from a 35 millimeter kind of vista shot to an eight millimeter handheld shot of them, then to a 16 millimeter black and white shot, and it within like 10 seconds. So it's like, did they just have all these different cameras everywhere? Like, yeah, set up right now. The car goes by like three times, and yeah. And the the way the dialogue is, it's almost at different times. I think I think it's amazing with the amount of cuts and the amount of editing that was made in this movie that it is co- as coherent as it is. And mm-hmm. even beyond the editing, but all just you know all the weird shit that's going on in the background. Um, you know, there'll just be these weird images in the sky. You know, trying to represent something, um, and yet it's the storyline is very seems very linear and easy to follow even though it does even flip around a little bit when it goes back to the court scene um you know there's some flashbacks and whatnot it's just well i know the court scene is in the director's cut um which wasn't in i know that's not in the version i watched but well um, do you mean the court scene with ashley judd or do you mean within wayne gale's uh, Robert, you, want, you know, because right? there's different elements i first of all I, I mean i watched the theatrical cut there's a couple different versions of the film there's the oliver stone director's cut which actually is almost the same as the theatrical and then there's this sort of illegal 
gray version that has reintegrated the the, the ton of diluted scene. Right? Like there's like Dennis Leary and then the Barbarian Brothers are in there. And it's actually a lot of stuff that someone commercially somehow got the rights to. I remember seeing Well, it, that it's version. actually coming out on Blu-ray. That I, I have Natural Born Killers cut. on Blu-ray. And then now... I think like six months after that release, that cut is coming out on Blu-ray. So I watched on mine. There was a um, special features with with Oliver Stone talking about the deleted scenes, not commentaries. He actually introduces each deleted scene and talks about it before you see it. And he gives his reasons why he hates like strong dislike. He's like, I, especially with the uh, weightlift, the, the 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 barbarian brothers guys, he's like the the acting is awful. They're not necessarily doing it. I asked for it and it didn't work, and it's gone. And and he's very <laughs> he's very harsh on why those things were cut. Or he's like, I like the scene, but it it fits into the movie nowhere with what we were trying to do. Or it it's actually tonally at odds with the thrust of the story. It actually wrecks the consistency of the story that by the time they got deep into the editing process. So I, I mean, I guess it's being released to make a buck, but mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's the all, like if you're, if you're in the, the auteur kind of zone, I don't think it's, there's lots of stuff and it is fun to watch some of that stuff. And I think a huge chunk of it is again, you're at odds with whoever rewrote it for Oliver Stone and his team of writers that wrote this new movie using dialogue bits and elements from the original. And then you, and then you have all these other scenes that now no longer make any thematic sense, but you know, Tarantino wrote them or, or, or whatnot. Um, but yeah, there's a lot. I, I think there were like 10 mm-hmm. scenes and some of the scenes are four and five minutes long. And, and then other stuff is diced like the whole Stephen Wright psychiatrist interview it's diced and edited into the show um Mm -hmm. and and whatnot so so, but is that just considered like the extended cut or something like yeah it's like the all-in version if you wanted everything it's kind of weird to think about somebody putting scenes back into this movie because where do you put them in like you know what i mean like it kind of jumps around a bit so it's like well it's perfect all you have to do is put like a a channel (laughs) flipping effect and cut to a scene i guess but it's like you know there's definitely like a sort of whoever's putting those in they have to make a conscious decision of you know, where they're plopping these things in and how it well, works. I actually think the theatrical cut, the Oliver Stone cut, what Jay said before is that, you know, like when they're changing film stocks, they, they had a, a plan. And I think they realized that plan. I, it may look like chaos, but I think it's actually rigorously controlled chaos. And what I noticed this time around was there are lots of cuts to like fictional people watching the movie like there will be a scene of like this 1950s family watching um mickey knox give some sort of statement and it's it's it's, the movie's really trying to say um that it's to be viewed through a consumption like a like a tv consumption mode and i mean there's scenes when they're like in the hotel and the windows will be actually tv screens showing documentary nature documentary footage or or world war ii footage or something as if to say you know there's always 
all this white noise in the background that whether you're paying attention to it or not, it's, it's absolutely there. And it gives that high artificiality to things, which irked the crap out of me in 94, but I actually really liked, I liked that, like the, the, the constantly overly red lighting and the, the rear projection of stuff onto buildings for no reason. I, I, I like that. It was like you were watching, um, like a play at times. Like it, it really had the, you know, yeah, there's a guy shaking, uh, like a, you know, a board to make some sound effect just off stage. And it had that high theatricality, which you almost never get in a studio film, like a, a, an intentional artificial looking, like not even attempt to make it look real. Well, it I, I me a lot of like a Julie Taymor film. There's all sorts of that weird euphoric, um, surreal imagery going on. And I like that a lot. Well, actually, what it reminded me of was a movie that I know a lot of people really dislike, but I like a great deal. Um, and pr- I think came out around the same time uh, was Francis Ford Coppola's uh, Dracula, the Bram Stoker's Dracula. And he had his son, Roman Coppola, doing all of the effects for that film. And they were using a lot of the same techniques where it was all in-camera effects and shadow puppets lighting that's changing in camera and um rear projection or front projection um so i I think that that's uh for me it it can well it definitely is more interesting than just having blue screen and, and cg effects and whatnot and if natural born killers came out today i'm sure that's what it would look like but well, the other thing it reminded me of that would be, you mentioned Southland Tales and Domino. I think the other thing that is a modern version of this would be the Crank movies. Um, because, you know, it, it it's almost like, you know, like they had like those scenes where they had words projected on people and stuff like that. And, and with Crank, they were just kind of, you know, mashing together like video game. And it's, it's just kind of like almost updated for what's what's now. And it's weird because I think watching Natural Born Killers now, some of that stuff, like with the whole thing of, you know, the media, and it, it seemed like a little bit dated in a way. And maybe because now we've had so many movies kind of doing that with the internet and, and all that kind of stuff. And it's just, it's become so much even more, um, I don't know, what's the word? Like overdrive. Yeah, it's just like an overload of stuff now. Uh, when it comes to media and like filtering things through the media and uh, but you know back then was pretty groundbreaking and and you know an interesting message but now well, there's just, no web presence in natural born killers because the internet would not have been a commercial entity at the time and of course now all the modern stuff tends to put a lot more satellites and and uh, uh, this kind of stuff in but Natural Born Killers, uh, to me, it is a great movie to sum up the 90s. Uh, there's a big montage at the end, and I have no idea what the time difference was between, but you see, like, the Rodney King beating, the Men- Menendez brothers trial, you see the uh, Branch Davidian, the Waco, Texas fire. Um, I think you see, like, Tanya Harding on trial. Uh, the uh, OJ, I mean, yeah. all this stuff was not like that old. Like this was almost like re- they were probably I them putting the that in after, right? Like the year that it came out. Um, I, I, I was OJ that year 
one of those clips was put in that same year. Like it, it almost seemed like that was currently happening when the film. Yeah. Came out. Definitely, and definitely it was, I don't know from what television was like in the late eighties in terms of like hard copy and inside edition. Like obviously the Robert Downey Jr. Program is, is, is modeled after those, like the, the cheap sensationalistic junk news magazine documentary like totally junk tv did that stuff exist in the 80s or was that like the early 90s that it started to come in no that was in the 80s as well i know maury povich hosted uh current current affairs i think was one of them and yeah hard copy and and i wasn't sure how new that was because it seemed to be really taking like that was the model at the inside time. edition with bill that, that's O'Reilly the one i think the and, one yeah. the one that, that was the worst of the bunch i had no mm-hmm. idea it was bill o'reilly though um but fuck it we'll do it live <laughs> it's very it. quaint now that that is what wayne gale is producing because all news looks like that now so in a way you got to give natural born killers full props for its ludicrous overdone satire is damn close to the reality in a lot of situations leaving the internet and uh web youtube stuff out of it so many people ripped on this movie for being just overtly in your face and the message was really heavy-handed and it just slapped you in the face um but like you said it is absolutely real that oj thing oj i remember it was my next year of college actually i remember at least the class I was in, let out early so we could go home and watch the OJ verdict. Verdict, which was 95, you're right. So, I'm, you know, I think the... And nobody else was saying this kind of stuff, and I don't think that it's... You know, it's, it's definitely a very obvious message, but I don't think it's really preachy. It's, it's... Or it's certainly not preaching to people. I think it's preaching to general media, um, you know, mainstream media, which quite frankly, can use good some good preaching to. But I don't think that it's, you know, people just scoffed at it as, well, it's just trying to tell me what I can and can't like or what, what I can or can't enjoy. Um, but, I, you know, it begs the question, who's more insane, the, these people in the, in the movie going around killing everybody or you, um, you know, going home, cutting class <laughs> to go home and watch the verdict of OJ? <laughs> You know, it's it's pretty interesting message. You've nailed it because that was what I totally did not see when I watched this movie in 94. And I thought it was basically saying television is bad. Violence is bad. Violence in the media causes people to be violent. Okay, that that argument's been going on forever. I found that the movie to be ultra heavy handed when I saw it. But this time when I watched it, I found it fascinating that exactly what you just said, that Mickey and Mallory being the undisputed psychopaths in the movie but they somehow managed to transcend the sit on your couch and watch they 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 absolutely transcend that um and i mean you actually see them transition uh over the course of the movie like there's one point in the motel where they're watching TV and they both um, sort of become impotent and go their separate ways. And then he sort of says, well, why is all these 
movies violent on TV? Why is there no kissing or whatever? And then they they never actually, other than the one little clip in the drugstore, they never watch anything, even though they, they keep like putting those word projections of too much TV. They never, they actually are outside of the, the media. And then by the time you get to the prison thing, they're not watching the media. They're actually stealing it as a, as a simple tool. Like it's just their escape vehicle. They don't care who's watching or that they're creating it. It's merely like, it's like a wrench to them to get out of prison. And then eventually they, they kill the media, like literally in, in Robert Downey Jr.'s character. And I, I found it funny because the big speech he has in the prison of, you know, he's pure that he doesn't have to sit around and be told he just is what he is. And, and, and so be it. And, and, and you know what you're getting when you look at me and, I found all this to be much more interesting <laughs> and rich watching it in 2009, maybe with more movie watching under my belt, or I don't know why this movie irked me as bad as it did or seemed so superficial in 94 when I actually thought there was quite a bit of richness to mine when I watched it this time. And on top of all that, I think it's extremely entertaining. I mean, personally, I find a lot of it to be really funny darkly funny but very funny um if you've ever watched an interview with charles manson up for parole and compare and contrast it with the uh mickey knox interview with wayne gale um it's it's pretty similar and and like all the uh, placing the whole family situation in a sitcom world um and just just all the one-liners and the cat the fucking weird cast i don't know who put this cast together it's not the cast i would put together but i'm so glad they did because it's just so out there like you touched on it right away woody harrelson is a serial killer um okay and and throwing rodney dangerfield in there is this um just racist pedophilic uh you know crazy ass brutal father um all that stuff is Maybe call me sick or whatever, but it's really entertaining, and a lot of it's really funny. Well, the Rodney Dangerfield takedown of the sitcom was the one thing in 94 that I actually thought they did well, because they're now taking something which is ultra-disturbing, and they're just throwing a laugh track on it to make it palatable, and I actually liked how he did that because I've always hated laugh tracks and I thought television started to become a better place when the comedies started to remove the laugh track and uh, the way they smack down like oh, they're almost like one liners between him and Edie McClurg and their sort of sitcom chemistry. But it's all this ultra vulgar, radically disturbing imagery and just the lighting and colors and the way the characters are dressed. Like it's like a clockwork orange, uh, that sequence oh, with much. hers because she's got the purple hair and uh, um <clears throat> And Rodney Dangerfield just nails it in in. Uh, I actually always like him in movies, uh, but he really generally plays goofy and and so almost dumbed down in movies. Whereas this, he plays a, a, an honest to goodness monster. But they still put like Joe Dante slash Looney Tune effects mm -hmm. during the fight, which even heightens it more. It's just such a weird. Sequence, and then they have credits that go over high speed credits. I just, mm -hmm. I love the the multimedia aspect of of that. Yeah, I li I liked all that sitcom stuff as well. I thought it was pretty pretty awesome. Um, yeah, uh, to touch on the Woody Harrelson thing, you know, I hadn't really 
thought about, you know, where his career was at the time. But I mean, I probably would have just seen him in, you know, white men can't jump or something. And it's pretty weird to think that, you know, pretty much the next thing he did was this. Like, and now, I mean, he's certainly gone on to do a wide variety of things and, you know, proved himself to be a pretty versatile actor, I think. But um, it must have been a risk to uh, cast him in this at the time. I think the only casting that fails in the movie, I just can't get my head around, is the the, the Tommy Lee Jones character. I, I remember that being my point of contention when I watched it back then. And even liking the movie now, I find... I don't know. I just... I know you're not supposed to like the character. You're not supposed to really like anyone in this movie, and that's fine. I've got no problem with that. But I still find Tommy Lee Jones's performance to be off. It just doesn't... I don't know. I don't know what would have worked for me in that thing, but I, I, I certainly know what doesn't work for me. And he's almost like playing Yosemite Sam uh, in, in the movie. Like he, he, that's all I can think of is, is like Mel Blanc when, when I'm watching that scene and it just, I don't know. I think they should have had a more realistic sense of the, the prison. Like when he gets the, I don't know what he's got. Like it's like a little pair of pliers or something. And he takes down this huge black inmate with this pair of pliers. It just didn't, I don't know. It just didn't, it's, didn't gel with the rest of the movie. I, I don't, I didn't like that. It's interesting. I think there's, a, I'm not saying this about you necessarily, but I think there's so many things in this movie that you could nitpick apart. Like if somebody doesn't like this movie, I, I completely would understand. I, I completely would understand. But, um, cause there's so many little things that you can nitpick, but I find all those things that are nitpicky, they also have something about them that are so just fun and unbelievable and uh, entertaining that I kind of overlook all of that stuff. But Oh, and last thing I, I was going to say is I can't remember where it was I read this. It was quite a while ago. But um, I know that there was a lot of illegal drug use going on on set. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's nothing new in Hollywood, but um, I'm talking about like hallucinogenics. Uh, I think the mushroom scene where they're driving in the car eating mushrooms, I'm pretty sure – I don't want to get a call from Woody Harrelson's lawyers. But I'm pretty sure that they were actually eating mushrooms and that includes Oliver Stone and um, a lot of people on set were actually getting really high during this. And I'm sure that if Robert Downey Jr. was there uh, at the time, he had he imbibed a little something, <laughs> something too. But – so I think that lends something to how this film turned out also as a piece of art. It's just, it's very, the movie itself is a hallucinogenic in a lot of ways. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that the, the filmmakers and cast uh, <laughs> were using at well, the time. One so. little bit of meta casting, which actually made no sense in 94, but it, it's, it's, and it's totally an accident and whatever, but it just struck me as amusing is when, Juliette Lewis goes off to find sex because she's frustrated with um, uh, with Woody Harrelson's character wanting to have a threesome with their hostage. And she goes off and has sex with this gas attendant. Uh, the gas attendant's played by Baltazar Getty, um, mm -hmm. who Bill Pullman turns into in The Lost Highway. And while she's having sex 
with Baltazar Getty, she's visualizing him as Woody Harrelson, which is almost like that, you know, the doppelganger thing that he has going on with uh, with the two uh, Patricia Arquettes and the two um, uh, things. I mean, obviously, none of this is intentional or whatever, but there are elements of natural born killers, which are certainly Lynchian and uh, just this wacky little uh, casting connection, which, you know, which is just a happy accident struck me as funny. But if there was anyone doing illegal substances on the set, it would have to be uh, Tom Sizemore. Uh, The (laughs) best, the scene where he's introduced, where he comes in and it's right after the gas attendant is murdered. And, he walks up to the scene. He sees that uh, Juliet Lewis has left like these big, like granny sized panties, whatever underwear she's wearing. And before he asks what happened or anything, he just picks them up and sniffs them. <laughs> that just cracks me. Everything he does in this movie is hilarious. And of course, he's as vulgar of a monster as anyone else is uh, in the movie. And he's he's a total he's a total ball of impulses and uh and then of course that care i guess the actor himself well, a few years later went off the rails himself yeah. but he's <clears throat> he definitely is channeling something in this movie and while he doesn't get a lot of screen time um all of his like lewd off-screen looks which jay mentioned earlier that a lot of characters have these edited in sidelong glances that start to tell this almost extra story that's beyond the main story all over the place he's given looks to mallory which eventually <laughs> culminates in the scene they have in in her cell and whatnot and just his everything he does in the movie i, I wish he was in the movie more to be honest because he's really really entertaining to watch um, yeah. how about how about i'm sorry go ahead no you go ahead well how about juliette lewis i i think Here's a girl that, at the time, seemed to be having the start of a pretty good career, and I think she's sort of disappeared in the last few years. But and, and she's also an actress that I don't really care for that much. She's in movies that I like, but I don't know. Something about her rubs me the wrong way. Um, but she's just awesome in this movie. Like, she just takes it to the limit um, in everything she's in. It's like she's just giving it her all in every scene. And uh, and her crazy over the topness just I don't know it works like gangbusters. I'm just curious why she sort of disappeared after you know like right around the turn of the millennium. Because she's busy with Juliet and the Licks or whatever the fuck they're called. <laughs> uh, she's a musician now. That's right. That's right. Yeah, but is she it, a musician or is she just in a band? <laughs> <laughs> But she does definitely kind of scream out 90s film. Like, I mean, when you think of her, you just think of 90s movies and that's it. I think of it must have came out at the same time or really close. The Scorsese remake of Cape Fear, where she's completely ineffectual. She's she's actually I don't often get frustrated when I watch movies when a character that's supposed to be innocent and and not and is still unable to act. But I don't she does something in Cape Fear that just makes you want to become Max Cady and and Slasher. I, I I just it's funny. I don't really dislike the actress, but her performance in Cape Fear is so powerless and ineffectual, and somehow that annoys you rather than makes you feel 
empathy for her. Mm-hmm. Um, she has this non-empathy when you're watching her, which, like you said, channels perfectly into this movie because she's supposed to be a glitzy media darling, but at the same time, she's total white trash and totally not that bright and totally impulsive and totally unlikable. And she absolutely hits all those notes somehow. Yeah. And, and and she's in all these movies that are like, she's in Gilbert Grape, I can think of, California, From Dusk Till Dawn, um, Christmas, the Way of the Gun. Vacation. <laughs> you know, all these movies, and she's horrible on that. She's all these movies that I really, really like, and yet she's just awful. Well, I won't go say so far as to say she's awful, but very forgettable and pointless, and she needed to have somebody else there um, in place of her. I, but for whatever reason, this is like her moment to shine, and she does, I think. I read somewhere that she, Oliver Stone, wanted the actress in that role to bulk up so that, you know, when they were, when she's kicking those big, uh, good old boys at the beginning, or when she's fighting with Tom Sizemore at the end that, you know, it would be believable that she could, you know, hold her own in a fight. And she said she didn't want to do it. She didn't want to put weight on or whatever. And somehow I guess they were, they were cool with that. But I actually think that, whoever made the decision in the end to keep her small was the right decision. Mm-hmm. Like when she, like it's a close up of her foot when she drops her cigarette and puts her cigarette out with her bare foot. That mm-hmm. scene is just fantastic. It gives you so much that she would just without even thinking, just drop her cigarette and put it out with her bare foot. And she makes up for like sheer, like her, you know, her inner spirit or her, her inner energy totally outdoes her physical looks. And I think that's what the movie is trying to say with a lot of things that, you know, just your, your own inner fever is a much more driving force than your physical body. They certainly have that element of, you know, she's constantly comparing them as, you know, angels that will transcend life and, 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 and so forth. And I don't think she means that in terms of fame. I think she means that actually in terms of like a more spiritual sense and, Leaving her small and and Juliet Lewis like in the movie, it is it totally works with that, and I absolutely buy when she um, ha- has that wrestling match with Tom Sizemore, and and mm-hmm. and when she picks up like the hand cannon and it's bigger than her, and 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 shoots him in the face. Um, it's more impactful because she's small. I think too the way that uh, she holds herself in those fight scenes. Like I don't know if they had any sort of training or something, but she seems like she knows how to fight. And so you kind of buy it because of totally. how she's like moving and stuff. It like seemed like she was like a boxer or something almost. Absolutely. So Especially cool. in that first scene in the bar. I love that scene. Yeah. I think that scene in that diner is the most, um, telling sign that this came from a Tarantino script. Um, because while well, he puts diners in drops. all of his movies, record drops. As soon as I saw a record drop, I'm like, "This was a Tarantino <laughs> script." Yeah, and, Get a jukebox uh, the, with the the good old boys coming in as well, and it, it just has hints throughout the whole movie. There's hints of certain elements of Kill Bill and and uh, from Dusk Till Dawn. I'm reminded of the like the news reports with the the kill counts and whatnot. Um, so it seems like he took certain elements and kind of not necessarily reused them, but like he does with a lot of his stuff, just kind of um, 
refurbished and and re replanted things in other films. Um, and obviously, like after seeing True Romance, you can definitely tell that just the characters, maybe not so much, there's not a lot of Tarantino dialogue in this movie, but just the characters feel like Tarantino characters. Like Mickey and Mallory totally feel like something like out Christian of Quentin Tarantino's. And, yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, uh, beyond the the messages in the film, which I, I do think are are pretty clear and, and obvious. And I, I think I'm more interested in just the kind of genre conventions or, or someone like Oliver Stone doing a genre film. And even though it, it is kind of an art film and it's taking certain things out of genres and twisting them and mashing them up, I think he does do certain things very well and certainly hits notes that like just the opening title of natural born killers with the blood coming down the screen and the font and the music. Um, I, I think just little snippets like that are very reminiscent of what Tarantino is doing now with everything. Well, look at the animated sequences. Uh, yeah. for some reason oh, they remind right. me of a KMFDM videos, but, uh, where they're going through the drugstore, but those scenes are cut throughout the film. You see Mm -hmm. the scenes where she picks up like some person and tears their head open or whatever. It's very reminiscent of the production IG insert into uh, say kill bill or for that matter, Guy Ritchie's uh, revolver also has a big animated sequence in and you know what, however Quentin Tarantino felt about this film when it was released, he's borrowing the cinematographer. He's using the same techniques. Obviously, at some point, it went from, yeah, that's not my movie, to, wow, I, I think I like what he's done, and I'm actually going to appropriate bits into my continuing filmmaking. Well, we've heard how he talks about his own movies and his characters. Like, he loves his own characters. So you can totally, I can totally see how he could sell that script and you know be attached to it to a degree and then seeing that film end up you know coming out of it and all of the changes and whatnot i can see him not being able to separate himself from that and appreciate it for what it is but i i it seems like he must have down the road kind of resolved that issue to a certain degree and taking on robert richardson and even you know he's worked with some of the cast throughout um well, at least uh, Juliette Lewis he worked with on From Dust Till Dawn, but um, he seems to have kind of uh, at least not borrowed from Natural Born Killers, but is working in the same mind frame in, in certain regards. But um, but yeah, for me, the film, I, the things that I like the most are are just the um, more, I guess, more of the the technical side of things. Like it's just so. Uh, uh, in your face and it's an overabundance of different techniques and different film stocks and, and cinematography. It's like the one time where they don't have any rules. Like normally you say you know, a, a good cinematographer will light something so that you don't pay any attention to what they're doing. And I, I don't always buy that. Like for some films that, that is the way it is, but even the 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 greatest natural lighters like Roger Deakins, you still watch his films and think this is amazing. Like it still takes you out of it. And as um, 
um, I, I guess that whole idea of just trying to keep the camera um, omnipresent, not noticeable and everything is thrown at the door for this film. And it's nice to see him completely embracing that and just going insane with it. And he kind of got into that mindset with a lot of his films at the time. Um, and it, it's just interesting to not have someone play that, that, you know, sort of, you know, I, I don't want you to think about what the camera's doing. They, he doesn't care. He puts the camera on the end of a spinning knife and it goes through a window. He puts the camera on the end of a bullet that stops in front of someone's head and spins for a bit and then blows her brains out all over the wall. He's, he's doing a lot of things in here that are complete nods to genre filmmaking because he does come from a, uh, uh, well, he, I, I know he worked on, uh, did, a, did a script for an early trauma film. So he's got trauma roots and he's embracing that and not to the point where he's it, it is a satire and it is over the top but I, I don't think he's making fun of it or shunning it or looking down on it it just seems like a a tool for this he's appropriating it yeah and i appreciate that i i think he does it well technically visually it, the stuff he does in this movie is awesome and he's not frowning upon it or talking down to people with it so i i really like that aspect of the film it has to be an early use of 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 doing extended um video sequences in it like all once they're down to the battery pack tv video camera huge chunks of the prison riot in the in the film are obviously handheld video camera like Mm -hmm. pretty close to consumer grade uh video and you can tell like the camera is not being dollied and it's moving around really jerky as if someone's holding it by hand. And I found again, I mean, this is 94. It certainly had been done, but just for the one aspect of the movie, um, to use video that aggressively, uh, you know, and, and make it a part of the movie rather than either the entire movie or nothing. Mm-hmm. I, I liked the use of, again, it's mimicking the TV element of it, but and the, the opening title sequence with the driving and the projection around the car. And I, I just love that. Like the, the way Robert Richardson will bring up certain light spots and, and take things down. And um, it's just being completely self-indulgent and, and, but with good reason, like there, this is the perfect format to completely lose your shit mm-hmm. as a cinematographer and not feel like you're just wanking off and for everyone, you know, well, the scene in the uh, interrogation where they way over light Woody Harrelson, like you can barely make out his facial features because it's all white is uh, is another example of it is trying to put you in the mood of the scene. Even the eight millimeter footage when they get married, it's like watching an old 70s. And it's interesting because video. I think that seemed to have informed Robert Richardson's style because the earlier Oliver Stone films that he did were not overly um, dramatic in terms of stuff like that, like the backlighting and the the hot spots everywhere. And like a film like Platoon is or pretty toned down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But once he started getting into JFK and uh, Natural Born Killers and, and Nixon and whatnot, he started playing around with that. And it completely leaked into all of his other films. Like he he did it in Casino he does it in the Kill Bill films. He did it in Bringing Out the Dead. Um, a lot of movies where it doesn't even seem like it would be appropriate, 
like Casino, even though Casino is kind of a fast moving, you know, mishmash kind of thing. But there's scenes in that film where people have their hands on a table at a like a mob meeting and the guy's hands are like glowing and, you know, they're walking through the casino and every time they hit a, a hot spot, their heads just like explode. Um, and that's what he's known for now. And that's what he gets hired for. And it seems to have come from this work. Um, so it's interesting that that experimentation seems to have informed his entire style from then on. Well, getting back into like the uh, subject matter in the film, the one thing I noticed this time around, I mean, you almost need to watch Natural Born Killers a second time because the first time is so overwhelming visually. Even, I imagine, in 2009, someone watching it for the first time would be overwhelmed. Uh, but one thing I noticed that the opening sequence in the diner, I think it's pre-credits even, yeah. um, uh, Arliss Howard, uh, I don't know, probably best known for being one of the recruits in Full Metal Jacket. Um, he's He turns up later in the prison riot uh, as this sort of super normal-looking prisoner that just happens to be ass-kicking and have all the answers. And I think it's him over the course of the movie that's often the guy in the red-lit flashes that's covered in blood. Mm-hmm. But he's actually sitting at the diner reading a newspaper about a prison riot. Like the, the end of the movie is actually printed on the newspaper that he's reading. And Mallory Knox looks after him. Obviously they don't kill him because, uh, well, he disappears. Um, he, he just, dissolves. like he, he actually dissolves on screen almost again, almost in a Lynchian mm-hmm. kind of way. And I don't know what any of that means or I, so I just wanted to, get your guys take on because he just sort of shows up in the prison and then they leave and i don't even can't even put my finger on where he actually exits the frame like Mm -hmm. they're all kind of clustered together and tommy lee jones is spitting uh and i guess you just don't even notice the fact that at one point he's gone um he just sort of bails them out and leaves it's interesting it's too bad i like i said back in college we were really into this movie so I remember reading stuff about that character, like the mythology, and I think there were interviews with Oliver Stone where he talked about him a little bit. And he, I, I, I don't remember the specifics, but he's supposed to be like sort of their their guardian angel character, or you know, some sort of deity of some kind, some sort of saving grace, like almost almost like a conscious or conscience or something. Uh, I don't know. Take that as you will. I wish I could remember more, but. You know, we were doing college type stuff when we were watching this in college. So. Essays, writing essays while you're yeah. watching it. Yep, yep, exactly. Drinking Sprite and eating soda crackers. <laughs> um, well, I don't know if you guys have um, more to say still about natural born killers, but um, I just want to bring up one other little. I mean, every time we pick movies, they always seem to have some similarities, even if they're not. Uh, you know, originally planned out that way. And clearly Chopper, Natural Born Born Killers were, you know, very thematically similar. But I just thought it was interesting. I totally had forgot that Robert Downey Jr.'s character had the Australian accent in this movie. And then it's kind of weird because um, that's the same accent he uses for that character in Tropic Thunder. 
And uh, I remember being kind of impressed at how good his accent was in Tropic Thunder. But now I'm like, well, he did it way back when. So it's not as impressive anymore. And I wonder in the script or anywhere if it actually said uh, Wayne Gale is Aussie or whatever. I'm sure he just (laughs) Robert Downey Jr. did his way into that because it just seems like he was let free in this movie. He is... In a movie of over-the-top characters, somehow Robert Downey Jr. manages to chew more scenery than anyone. And I know that's kind of a specialty of his, and he can do restrained, but his character is the true villain in the movie of all the characters. Um, I think, you know, he's the final character, and and they let him go out in the sort of mock, self-indulgent, Jesus Christ pose, which which I think is a great irony that, you know, they always say that the last, you know, the last refuge of scoundrels is religion. And when he finally is like sniveled his way into every possible rationalization as to why they shouldn't kill him, um, he finally just gives up and, you know, (laughs) does the Jesus Christ pose and and uh, does some sort of like didgeridoo sound or something and then they kill him it's a good performance though i i actually i i seem to recall liking robert downey jr's monologues and vice voiceovers when i watched it originally but i i think it's a good performance i i did enjoy watching him in this you heard it here folks robert downey jr is now a verb <laughs> I, I think with this movie, awesome. when it came out, it was just it caught my attention because I was getting interested in, in filmmaking. And it's one of those films where when you see it when you're 15, uh, you start looking at um, things like cinematography and like because it's so blatantly obvious in the film that it's interesting for me because that's where I started noticing certain things like that. And like just a lot of the stuff, like the use of color and everything, like the green throughout it. And and so it, it was kind of an interesting um, sort of early mind blowing experience that looking at it now, it, it's it's not that crazy. It, it For the time, it was pretty out there, but it, it's structurally not that in terms of the story. It, it's yeah, easy to true. follow it compared to a lot of stuff that's coming out now. I'd even say that natural born killers is easier to follow than the born films and the born films are, are made for major mainstream audiences. But, um, at the time it was like, you know, everyone would talk about how insane natural born killers is. And, you know, have you seen that movie? Uh, it's fucked. All they do is cut around to TV shows and people it's just like being on mushrooms, man. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> Yeah, so it was interesting in that way. And it was just one of those movies that the imagery in it, like the, just the poster of Woody Harrelson with the red glasses. And I remember that being a very strong image at the time and and coming out the same year as Pulp Fiction. And, um, you know, when we were making, like I said, making films, it it was those movies that were informing what we were handing in for food nutrition class, (laughs) like suddenly you get a presentation about fast food and you get people shooting at each other and like talking about, you know, whatever sort of uh, mob activities that (laughs) you might be able to work into something like that. But um, that was the best, like that was the easiest way to do a school project was, you know, 
don't worry about writing a paper or something. Just do a movie. Seriously, it got to the <laughs> point where I started other friends at other schools would be like, do I got to do a presentation. Could we make a movie this weekend? <laughs> and then we just do it. And it would be like, uh, sometimes I know for my food nutrition one, this is kind of a tangent, but we did uh, pulp nutrition <laughs> <laughs> and it was the, the presentation was about fast food um, nutrition. And it's the scene where they're talking about like the Royal with cheese and whatnot. And rather than talking about that, they're like, do you know how many calories are in a Big Mac? <laughs> he's, he's like, 455. God damn, that's a lot of calories. <laughs> and he's like, do you know how many calories in a Whopper? I don't know. I didn't go on a Burger King. <laughs> and then it would end in like a 10-minute like shootout in the, a dark parking lot and behind our school. But yeah, like this is another movie that just reminds me of that kind of thing where it, it was so strong in its imagery and it, and it appealed to, I guess, that kind of age group um that it's fun to revisit and and watch but i would hardly describe it even now watching it as as overly quaint or or tame it is still a very aggressive movie even by today's standards even though the media has probably caught up and passed it in terms of CNN ticker tapes at the bottom and five windows going simultaneously and, and uh, you know, the, obviously the number of channels and internet and all the other kind of stuff. But it reminds me a lot, I mean, structurally, of course, it, 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 it's playing a bit off the Bonnie and Clyde anti-hero mythology. But when I watch Bonnie and Clyde now, like the, the final shootout is, should be a cliche and it should totally not work. But you, I, I sit down with Bonnie and Clyde and I, you know what's coming, you know, everything that's and then you watch it and you marvel that that scene still has the ability to do what, uh, you know, um, they wanted to do to get that extreme impact on the viewer, even though lots of films have borrowed from it. It's been outdone and 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 turned over and, and reinvented. And I find a lot of the techniques in, in, in Natural Born Killers, despite the fact of being appropriated and, and moved around in different movies. I mean, look at, like say, like uh, The Doom Generation by Greg Araki, which would be probably the closest visual analog of trying to tell this kind of, you know, sort of allegorical, over-the-top, crazy shot film. But I still find or at least I found this viewing uh, for the first time in 15 years, uh, the movie still has an incredible um, visual punch when you're uh, yeah, watching Yeah, I it. think especially visually. I, I think when I say it, it's not as insane as it seemed. I mean, just in terms of the actual story, like the, subversiveness. the comprehending the story. It, it's right. not very hard to follow now i mean even back then it wasn't that hard but i think people were probably more thrown for a loop whenever it would cut to like the the sitcom thing or you know the polar bear drinking coke or or whatever um but now with with so many uh movies and tv shows that are structurally i I guess maybe since pulp fiction uh mainstream stuff have kind of strived towards playing with the the structure of narrative a little more um even when it's not necessary but um yeah i I find it i just find the movie very easy to digest in terms of the story what happens they go i think they go from a to b pretty clearly 
but there are things on the side like that guy in the prison scene that are still kind of uh, interesting and things you can dig into. It's like what's in the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. It was interesting. I was reading, speaking of that, a little bit of a tangent kind of, but um, I was reading the magazine that you get for the digital channels up here. I can't remember what it's called, but there is an article about uh, Inglorious Bastards. And the guy had mentioned that at the time when Pulp Fiction came out, how there was all of this talk about Quentin Tarantino um, stealing from other films. And, and he mentions this short documentary that a filmmaker made. Um, I can't remember what it was called, but it was basically just a film that accused Quentin Tarantino of taking story elements of reservoir dogs from the Asian film city on fire and, and whatnot. Same thing. When Pulp Fiction came out, the guy made a sequel and talked about the briefcase coming from this film and the, you know, all of these different things. And thinking back on that now um, and how that has kind of Quentin Tarantino's style has progressed into a clear uh, tribute and, and like homage to all of the films he loves where his filmmaking is no longer. I, I think the accusations of him stealing and ripping off are pretty much dead now because he does it so much that he's turned his filmmaking into like a almost hip hop kind of thing like it's comparable to uh like mashup artists or, or hip-hop artists who sample certain things and and the pop culture that they love just ends up kind of being reworked back into things um and uh, uh i don't i don't know what it has to do with natural born killers necessarily but um i i found it interesting that you know thinking back at this era when this came out that tarantino was going through that whole uh phase of people questioning his worth as a filmmaker because they started seeing oh the colored names and reservoir dogs that's from the taking of pelham one two three just ripped that off but that whole argument has kind of died uh over time right but there's i don't really think there's anything in natural born killers that can be called out on on that i guess no, anything but, he might have had in the script they might have taken out but i guess it just goes to show that a lot of the movies from this era were kind of ahead of their time and now when you go back to them it kind of just proves the point that you know things have just kind of followed suit and yeah it shows that they're ahead of their time because pulp fiction can come out then and and the first thing that someone will do is say he stole that from this and this from that and now it's like it's boring. It's like the equivalent of watching a documentary and spending the whole film saying to yourself, I bet that part was staged. I bet they didn't do this. Or how did they get that angle if there's only one camera? And you end up missing the entire film because you're so fucking concerned with whether or not the, the thing was set up or whatever. Uh, it's same thing with watching Quentin Tarant Tarantino's films at that time. So many people were concerned with calling him out on taking things from other movies when now it's just documentaries are just documentaries. Enjoy them for what they are. Some of them are experiment in certain ways. Some of them don't Quentin Tarantino's films are what they are. They're like the hip hop equivalent of movie making. They're, they sample from things because they appreciate it, not because he's stealing from it and he's not hiding it. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, so any, yep, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say one last thing that I have for Natural Born Killers is the soundtrack. It's um, it's actually one of my favorite soundtracks, and 
it's actually I think natural born if it weren't for natural born killers I probably wouldn't be into like bands like Nine Inch Nails like they're they're very prevalent on there but um, even bands that I don't even really listen to or or artists that I don't listen to like Leonard Cohen and um, L7 I think is in there Um, the Cowboy Junkies the, the soundtrack is just awesome I listen to it in fact I've been listening to it all week because sort of just I don't know in natural born killers mode so that 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 was the last thing I wanted to say is that uh, actually we should talk about we should soundtrack. talk about the soundtrack. I I think the soundtrack is interesting in that you really never other than the three Leonard Cohen songs I don't think you hear anything even remotely to completion. Like the, the there's I think there's a sample from like Puccini opera while that bullet is hanging in yeah. midair for what two seconds tops and. When you go through the actual soundtrack listing, uh, which conveniently some websites have it in the order that those songs are played, and you realize, I mean, forget about the actual CD that you could buy in 94. I mean, the actual list of um, non-score music, I mean, is there even a score in that movie? I don't know. I mean, it's comprised, like everything else, of the sort of channel-hopping mentality and there is no uh, sort of coherence to, or like it's not like one style of music even closely. He's got, um, I mean, he's got Bob Dylan on the soundtrack, and then he's got like Rage Against the Machine, or um, like I said, opera. There's some, um, there's some country. There's, there's just. It's an eclectic mix. Some of it's popular, some of it's obscure, some of it's trendy, like flash in the pan. Some of it is sort of iconic. I, I mean, there's ambient. There, it's it's a great sampler. I think the soundtrack was actually done by Trent Reznor. Yeah, I was just going to say here on Wikipedia, there's a quote from him. It says, well, it says he produced the soundtrack using Pro Tools in his hotel room while on tour. And the quote from him is, I suggested to Oliver Stone to try to turn the soundtrack into a collage of sound, kind of the way the movie used music, make edits, add dialogue, make it something interesting rather than a bunch of previously released music. So there you go. I always think of, even though I'm a huge Cowboy Junkies fan, for some reason, like obviously there was an impact. I've only seen Natural Born Killers twice and and the second time only recently, but I always thought of... um, Juliet Lewis talking over Sweet Jane, like the the, the Lou Reed cover uh, that mm-hmm. that the Cowboy Junkies. I think that song actually became almost like a chart yeah, hit from from this movie. Um, so. And I always think of the speech that Juliet Lewis is giving when I hear that song. Even though, even if I'm like listening to my own um, MP3 player with like just the regular song, my my mind will put in bits of dialogue. And I must admit a thousand movies have used Leonard Cohen, but for some reason, particularly the future, like the, the closing credits sequence just feels, I never thought of Leonard Cohen as a out in the desert, middle of nowhere kind of sound to me. He was always a much more sort of smoky, club kind of sound, but wow, does that music ever go with the image, like with the desert highways with like a lizard crossing it or whatever. Mm -hmm. It just, 
that those choices were inspired and maybe he's used so often in movies musically uh like sometime embarrassingly bad like recently in the watchman i mean that is the worst use of hallelujah in the history of appropriating that song but maybe he's used often post natural born killers because people who watch that the the music and images hit some sort of resonance that 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 really works i find there's very few musical cues in that movie that fail for me. Right. Me too. Yeah, as much as I love this movie and I've liked it, I think I even liked it more as I was watching it this time. Like, I wouldn't have a problem. I just finished it, you know, a couple hours ago. I wouldn't have a problem putting it on right now and watching it over again. I, For whatever reason, this this... I love this movie. And you could subvert the movie by merely watching it in the background and not paying attention to it, which would be the opposite of the message that it's trying for. Uh, All right. Well, so any final thoughts then on natural born killers? Should we move on? Well, my last thing would be simply, I'm glad that I, I mean, many movies are like this, but I'm glad that watching natural born killers for a second time, it had such a radically different reaction with me that goes to show you that, you know, you can never stand by your opinion on a movie. It's going to evolve as, as you change, as the world changes, as, as things change. I'm watching a completely different movie in 2009 than I was watching in 2004. And that may be the sign of a good movie, a movie that can age with you and 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 it just isn't just sort of a lump like an entertaining or a story lump in front of you it's actually something that evolves in the context of everything around it and i mean there's lots of movies that do that but natural born killers is a fine example of one of these well it's like in what like 2019 when you guys rewatch lady in the water and you're like this is something that I I did not see in 2007. What I'm watching right now is a completely different film. Well, I know you just picked that movie randomly because, you know, it's just like one of these random titles. But uh, no, I, I think Lady in the Water will still be pretty bad in 2019 for me, no matter how much I evolve. When we're still doing this podcast every six weeks, 10 years from now. We'll have another uh, revisit Lady and see in what the water, happens. The revisit. Well, but when they, I think when they re-release it in 3D, I'll probably appreciate it more then. Yeah, that, that could be the case. I love watching that movie. It's so shit. I love watching it. <laughs> All right. Chopper. Hey, hey, Andrew. <laughs> Andrew, you're shit. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's not I get personal here. <laughs> Um, so, all right. So movie number two was Chopper. Now I think I may have been the one who suggested this, but, um, it's only because for years now people have been recommending this and saying you should check it out. And I think in particular, a lot of the Australian listeners of film junk would constantly be like, you gotta see Chopper. And of course, Andrew Dominic, uh, directed it and he's the same guy who went on to do, um, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford and uh kind of kind of interesting um to see where he where he kind of started out but also um Eric Bana um you know it's weird cuz I knew he was in this and I've seen the cover of this movie so many times and I still did not put the two images together and realize that that was Eric Bana I don't know why could I guess just cuz he well, he's basically unrecognizable yeah. in this movie 
plus the fact that he's never so I saw this film it I don't know if it was the world premiere it was certainly the North American premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival when it came out in 99 or 2000 and I had no idea who Eric Bana was uh, unless you were living in Australia and liked stand-up comedy you you didn't know who he was and that performance in this film is so magnetic um, and it, it as much as Eric Bana has had some good performances since then I like him in Hulk I even like him in Troy um, he is yet to come even like as much as you want to talk about other things in Chopper really the main thing to talk about in Chopper is just how good like this is like it's almost the walk the line kind of movie of Siller Killers where the movie is all right but the performance is riveting and totally unhinged like from the actor's point of view he just really whether that is Mark Chopper Reed or not, whatever the character he is, it, is, it feels like that actor brought some magic to that, a lot of magic. Well, yeah, I mean, um, I guess I can start by just saying, like, I thought this movie was awesome, but um, it was not the movie I thought it was going to be. I mean, it starts out, and it's there's there's hints of sort of some some humor and some dark comedy in there, but it's, you know in the prison and stuff. And there's some pretty violent, bloody scenes early on, but as the movie goes on, it kind of gets more and more kind of loose and, uh, you know, like you said, unhinged. And, and as he kind of gets into the character and you kind of realize, okay, this guy's a little bit unreliable, unpredictable. You don't know what's going to happen. And, uh, it just, yeah, by the end, I mean, I was just kind of expecting a straight up serial killer movie, which this is not, at all. I mean, he's not even really a serial killer per se. I mean, he's, I guess, more known for um, being sort of a con artist or something, I believe. So, uh, and, and of course, it's based on the book that he wrote about himself. Yeah, it's so, a good, unreliable narrator kind of movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, what, what about you guys? I mean, Jay, you, this was your first time seeing it? Yep. Thoughts? Well, my my simple brain um, had always just expected this movie to be about a motorcycle gang, <laughs> and uh, I, I it's not. No, um, I I liked it a lot, um, and I I do think that Eric Bana is the the best thing about the film. But I I like the the film itself as well, just in in that it was just very basic. It it just got from one end to the other. And, and even though there is a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, playing with the structure of the narrative to a degree, um, uh, I, I liked how simple it was and, uh, it, it was an interesting looking film. It was, uh, like all of the prison stuff was, was pretty ugly, but in a cool kind of way. And just his character, the, the way he, acts on impulse and then immediately regrets or seems to regret what he's just done is it starts to get kind of comedic throughout the movie and how he, he will, you know, apologize for what he just said and then basically work himself back up to the point where he was just (laughs) apologizing for, um, I thought was pretty awesome. And, and just the character, uh, itself is, he's a very kind of complex character that, 
Eric Bana just seems to nail. And, and I mean, not that the, the sort of, um, body modification that actors do is, is the, the, like, I hate when a lot of movies all they'll talk about is how much someone, uh, how much weight someone gained or lost. I, I think he just completely, completely embodies this guy. Like even just his, the way he talks, his mouth, his, the, the gold or whatever on the front of his teeth, his mustache, the hair, his hair is so like simple, but so ridiculous in this, just this weird, like, like non-textured flat top kind of brushed forward haircut. He, he just looks ugly in this movie. Like he looks like a, a fucking fat head douchebag that you would see at a bar that bullies everyone that they come into contact He's with. A thug. Yeah, he he completely if you see Eric Bana in an alleyway now, you want to you want to stop him and talk to him about the Hulk and you know, <laughs> see what his experiences were working with Ang Lee and whatnot and I'm excited for funny people. You see Eric Banana like 10 years ago in an alley in this mode <laughs> you run. You just stop. You piss in your pants. You drop to your knees, and you pull a gun out and put it in your mouth, <laughs> blow your brains out all over him, and then he has this traumatic experience and never acts again. And it, I, I just did the performance. It's one of those performances where the, he just totally embodies this guy. And I was watching some clips of the actual guy on YouTube, and it's pretty dead on. And but not to the point where all it is is an impression. Like he is spot on like i i watched the clips after the film watching it not knowing what this guy is like i didn't even have to look at the guy like eric banna is that man eric banna has killed (laughs) (laughs) well it's funny too because um if you watch this when it came out i don't think you could appreciate how well or how much of a transformation it was until now we've kind of seen who the real Eric Bana is. Well, that's the thing. You you think of the Hulk and it's like, if I had seen this before the Hulk, when the Hulk came out, I would be saying to myself, fuck, Chopper's playing the Hulk. This is going to be awesome. (laughs) That was me. Yeah. That that, that was my reaction. I'm like, wow, what a great, because he was pulled out of nowhere. mm -hmm. But he did all these, like uh, the guys who did The Dish. I don't know if you're fans of the the movie The Dish, the the, the space, uh, the the satellite uh, movie. I haven't seen it. It's it's a good little Aussie goofy comedy. The movie that those guys did before that was called The Castle, which is about a guy that doesn't want to let the government take over his house to extend the airport. So he just... Actually, my cousin was living in Australia for a year and a half, and I told him about Not Quite Hollywood, and he had asked, he had mentioned The Castle. Well, it's a great film, and Eric Bana is like the goofy boyfriend, the scrawny, goofy boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And this came out probably two years before chopper so i'd seen him in i guess i had seen him in one movie but i didn't make the connection and it was after maybe watching the castle again and you're like oh my god is that guy ever friggin' scrawny because even though he is kind of small at the in the prison sequences like the 1978 segment of the movie he's a normally proportioned guy not like a big ball of raw meat that he is later in the film but i guess the look on his face and it's like a it's like a really short, angry guy can seem intimidating if he's given you the nth degree or whatever. And the way he goads the other prisoner at that thing, 
he feels like what he's going to become later already, even though he doesn't have the physicality to it. And that's mm-hmm. that's why you always think of him as being this crazy, intimidating monster. Um, Which and it reminds me of it's not the as much of a, a crazy uh, reverse of how the guy is in real life, but um, Russell Crowe and Romper Stomper. Like you, you, it's the same thing where if you see Russell Crowe in, you know, um, American Gangster where he looks like Roddy Roddy Piper (laughs) and then you see Russell Crowe in Romper Stomper and he just looks like this disgusting, like asshole skinhead that if you ran into him on the street, you would turn the other way. Um, so both of these guys kind of just completely nail that tough guy, like, I'll, I'll just fuck with anyone that gets in my way. You, well, you alluded to it, you know, earlier when you were saying, you know, you hate it when people just say, oh, look at how much that person's changed. Like, I, I think of um, Christian Bale and The Machinist. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the opposite of that. But, you know, in The Machinist, you're, you're just like, wow, look at how much weight Christian Bale has lost. That's sick. In this... Um, you might have a hard time convincing somebody that that's Eric Bana. It's mm-hmm. so it like, I mean, I'm not to beat a dead horse here, but you, you guys nail it. I mean, it's just a completely different person. I mean, this is not Eric Bana. I don't know who this guy is, but it's not Eric Bana. Um, it's, it's Eric it's, Banana. It's, it's just, <laughs> yes. His <you>. alter ego. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was gonna, kind of sit back and not have a lot to say about this movie but just in the last five minutes i came up with a lot of shit but um but that was that's obviously the main thing like if for no other reason to watch this movie because i'm kind of with kurt i think it's just okay as a movie if for no other reason you got to check this out you got to see eric banana doing this this role of mark reed because it's just a fucking amazing quite frankly physically and as an as an actor i it's just amazing to me so mm-hmm. yeah well definitely in terms of not recognizing him the poster if you tell someone now that that's eric banna on that poster with the guns yes. yeah i don't right. think anyone right. would believe that yeah and you know what to go along with that um i would say the only other movie i know of that andrew Do- well the only one he has done andrew dominic the director is jesse james which is the best movie of 2007 and wow, how much how much different it is. I mean, it, it has to tackle some of the same themes as far as like celebrity and antihero and whatnot. But um, just in terms of aesthetics and tone, and even just like structure, it's a completely different film. Way less in your face and just more epic and beautiful. And uh, it's weird that he hasn't done anything in between. It's been seven years. And according to the IMDb, it's not going to be for another three years until his next movie. So, which is a Cormac McCarthy novel, which should be interesting to see what he does with that. Yeah, I I just—it's just weird. So, he's a music video guy, though. uh, Eric Dominic or Andrew Dominic's a music video guy. I don't know if he's like David Fincher that goes back and does music videos in between. Uh, and I don't know if it's the same cinematographer. I guess who did Jesse James? Was it Roger Deakins? Roger Deakins. So it wasn't the same guy that did. No. Um, uh, well, I no, I, there's a lot of stylization in both of those films. I mean, there's a lot of reds and greens. Like, actually, that was the one 
there were a couple connections to Natural Born Killers because we're doing both of these at the same time, and I watched them like one after the other. And Mm -hmm. the intentional sickly green lighting contrasted with the in-your-face red lighting, often in the same shot. Like, they'll be in his dad's house, and the front living room is like a photographic dark room with red light, and the kitchen is like this sickly green look and there might be people in in both things they might even walk from one to the other and i mean for a movie that for 90 percent of its runtime is relatively restrained in the visuals department um all of the interiors of the people in his life are shot aggressively stylized not a like a moving crazy camera movements no um but just an early tony scott film just the lighting did a movie like in 19 maybe like 83 or something this is what it sort of reminds me of actually it reminds me of steven soderbergh's cinematography because he has started to embrace this um avoidance of using any movie lighting he tries to just shoot everything naturally and you can really see it in the limey where any scenes that take place under fluorescent lights he doesn't run from it he just the scene will be green or it'll be blue or or whatever or obviously the big one is traffic but where he's using it in actual full scenes that are being separated by color in this film there's multiple colors within scenes but the i mean the prison stuff being all kind of that bluey green and um, I think it is a similar approach. And then in the bars in that movie, he does these sort of stroby white lights as well that kind of interrupt that pure red. Or... Well, and he also does the high speed <clears throat> photography, which yeah. I, 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 they must have had the actors speak slowly so that yeah, their ADR matched because they, they have almost like the, the right near the end when they deconstruct the Bojangles murder in court. You actually have the actors in high speed giving a almost relay piece of limerick or poetry um, to describe the events for a movie that's very restrained in it's, this is how it went down way. I find it. I don't know if I can understand why they made the decision for maybe two scenes in the film to do that aggressive like music video aggressive styling of those things i can't say that it doesn't work it it maybe it works better because he he only uses it those two times but it definitely jumps out in a movie that's for the most part pretty restrained in its in its shooting style yeah well i I think the first time is because they do cocaine right but even then it's like that technique normally it's kind of cliched and and whatnot but the fact that they have them speaking is what makes it interesting that they're it it's almost just so subtle you might not even notice it like they just it looks off like they're acting weird i thought maybe my dvd was broken for a second (laughs) in that scene where the where the like my dvd (laughs) this is what i picture i picture you watching and that happening, and you're drinking directly out of your box of wine, and you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> Is my fucking DVD broken? <laughs> no, I mean, I got it, like, right away. I actually wrote that down here. I wanted to mention that scene, because the, the audio stays correct. Yeah. But it feels... the, the That's the interesting part of it. Like, um, 
that like my DVDs in two, times two mode speed, you know, fast forward just a little bit. Yeah. It was awesome. I really, yeah. I thought it was a unique way actually of showing a, a cocaine high and it only lasts for like a second. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, also like Kurt, you're kind of talking about whether or not some of those things fit in, but I guess that's to me when like, like I was saying, the movie kind of changes a bit. Like it starts out and you kind of think it's just going to play it straight. And although there is that, opening thing that says things have been changed this is not a biography which kind of maybe hints that hey you can't take any of this at face value but you know it's it's only like maybe halfway through where they start playing with you know okay everything this guy this chopper guy says is not always true because they kind of go back and replay a couple scenes over and uh, also what he's telling the the cops yeah he's, he's clearly lying or manipulating totally everyone around him it so. might be the <laughs> so um, so but like that's you know as it starts changing and then it's like the tone of the movie changes a little bit it gets maybe a little more surreal at points and and i thought it worked because of that um but it gets funnier as the movie goes on yeah like, it's like what is he really doing that at the beginning but i i think the movie amps it up and by the end when they all do their little poetry of this crime which is this murder cold-blooded murder but they play it out like it's funny and goofy i think that's the point of here's mark chopper reed as this young guy in prison because he's just you know a moron um and here is him developing his actual autobiographical tone and they try to articulate that with how you view the movie. So by the end, when he's holding court to the news cameras and he's a bona fide, self-created celebrity, um, and he's a celebrity because people watch him to see what he's going to say or how casual he's going to to say. You know, I I I I I cut the guy's toes off with a with a bolt cutter because I wanted to see them pop off, and I think that's funny and. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like you, when he stabs the guy in the prison at the beginning, there's nothing funny about that. Uh, I mean, it's disturbing um, and equally disturbing when he gets stabbed. When he, I find and that like, the most disturbing the scene of the movie. What is going on? <laughs> but that's where you cue into the fact that it is a self mythologizing autobiography because he, like, they play it like he's breaking up with his girlfriend. <laughs> you, you said what? I mean, he's bleeding out of six wounds, and he's like let me go over and think about this for a second before I think. And he goes over and he's completely unfazed. Like, I mean, eventually he does lie down, but that scene, I don't know if it's one take or not, but that scene goes on and on. And you're like, shouldn't he be dead at this point? He's been stabbed more than a dozen times. And, and then he goes up and hugs him. I mean, that's the the first, that's the first time when the movie really, it's weird that that for me, that scene changes tone in mid scene, it goes from intensely disturbing to, I can't believe they're taking it this far. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. it becomes, it actually becomes safe in a way. And I think that's why Mark Chopper Reed is such a sensation in Australia is that he's a serial, like not a serial killer. Like he's, he's a, he's a, he's a guy who's killed a couple times and who knows how many other times are, are real and what, what's elaborated. But when he's on camera, He's a funny guy. He's entertaining. He makes serial killers safe. He's this isn't like a Jeffrey Dahmer, a Ted Bundy, a, like the crazy wide-eyed. You look at his picture and you're immediately disturbed. This is a guy that 
yeah, he's a he's killed several people and he's obviously unhinged, but you might have a beer with him if he's in his good mode. <laughs> he makes well, serial killing funny and cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, the, seriously, though. Which is the, both natural born killers and... <laughs> Because yeah. people ended up copycatting. Well, well, don't you find that when you're... That was a big similarity I saw between Chopper and Natural Born Killers is the characters within the film seem to bend... Like, why would these characters bend over backwards? Here's a guy who was shot with a shotgun in the leg and practically crippled by him. And then later on in the movie, he's buying him beers. Even after he's shot the place up again and he hasn't physically shot this guy he still lets him into his house i mean it's this guy has a pure raw charisma that even people that he is screwed over and have been nothing but confused and intimidated with the guy will still help him out and mm-hmm. and i found that with mickey and mallory knox like um like the way people react and if you contrast wayne gale interviewing breathlessly mickey knox in Natural One Killers, to the anonymous reporter, again, breathlessly interviewing Mark Chopper Reed, yeah, you realize how they're radically different in execution, but the central core of... I mean, it would make a good triple bill if you threw um, To Die For on um, on there, but Gus Van Sant's To Die For is the only one that actually, you know, finally ends with the murder of the of the psychopath. These two movies say, yep, they exist. They're a part of us. They're going to entertain us and let's move on. Yeah. Well, I, I was just going to say too, um, you know, like I think that's part of why Eric Bana is so good in this role because he has that one minute he's like charming and funny and you're like, yeah, I love this guy. And the next minute he turns and you're like, Oh shit, what just happened? <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's a lot of sort of like, moments like you were saying where it's like is this really happening but um the biggest for me was when he, he has his cock out in the in the bar or whatever I, that scene. I was just like did i just see that and it's like weird because how they shoot it it's like at first you're like what am i looking at that and then you know of course by the end they leave no question but <laughs> that was yeah you know i was sold after that <laughs> yeah I, I think the humor in this movie is I, I didn't expect it to be as funny as it is. And I think the humor is kind of buried a little bit, but when he goes to the house of the guy with the, that he had previously shot his kneecap out and just that scene where he like yells at the guy about wanting money from him. And then, uh, <laughs> he's, he, the guy storms out of the room and he kind of walks over and he's like, I'm sorry. I, I just, I, you know, I, I didn't mean to do it. I've been drinking a bit and he sits down and he's like, but seriously, I, I need some money. <laughs> and then it just, you know, goes from there and he ends up shooting the guy in the gut. It, it's, and then taking him to the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> and then denying to the cops that, that he, he took, took him to the him. hospital. That yeah. kind of defeats the purpose of shooting in the first place, doesn't it? <laughs> he makes a very convincing case of why he wouldn't take him. It's it's funny because he seems to be at one point at times completely at odds with his ball of impulse and, and unable to understand himself. And then at other times he just says, Ah fuck it. This is the way I feel right now. I'm just gonna play how I feel right now. It's it's actually an interesting 
text it's an interesting case on on just watching schizophrenia like some form of schizophrenia is an umbrella for a lot of things but some form of schizophrenia in action without ever being preachy about it it just shows it to you and i don't even think it calls attention to it it just sort of it's just there Mm -hmm. well i i you know when he shoots the guy in the uh parking lot that that case is about he he gets off right he doesn't actually get charged for that right so uh, is it to assume that he actually didn't do that after all like i because i, 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 I in the movie he does do it but i'm talking about within the term within the idea that they're doing a film about a guy who bullshits a lot so in the film he did it but the story plays out as though they don't think he did and he ended up getting off because he's got a good attorney and whatnot which i, I thought was kind of weird so I'm wondering if the movie, because it says right up front that they are playing with things and, and you know, uh, it's not a biography and whatnot, it almost follows that idea of not believing what he has to say. Like when the cops clearly say, you did not kill the person, we found the weapon. And um, it almost seems like they're trying to give that impression that he is bullshitting, even though we saw in the film that he did it and, and maybe they played out like he did it, but... In terms of his mythology, he's kind of stacking his kills uh, a little more than what he actually did. Well, I think that's a good point because I'll get into this in a second, but there were a few things I was confused about a little bit. But regarding that, didn't I thought that he mentions a few minutes later that, well, it took the cops about two weeks to finally figure out, oh, that I did do it. And then I, I think... Now I can't remember, but I thought he then he did end up going to jail. He went um, to jail for shooting the guy in the gut, didn't he? Right. Yeah. Oh, but he got five jail. years. He got five years for aggravated assault and disturbing oh, the right, peace. Right, I mean, right, there right. were a hundred witnesses to him. No, no, no. He he shot at the guy in public. I, mm-hmm. He may have even gone to jail for simply shooting up the bar, which was yeah. a very public. Um, but the things that no one saw. He didn't uh, he never go to jail for. He never. He didn't go to jail for shooting a guy's eye. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. And then the other thing was the first time that he's talking to the two cops. I don't know if I missed something or what, but I didn't. I didn't know that they were cops. I didn't understand that. I thought it was just a couple of business guys in a bar he was talking to. And then later on, I figure I found out not only they're cops, but for some reason he's working for them. Like I didn't. I didn't draw all those connections. Did I miss something? I didn't. I didn't there? get that right away either. Um, after and the why film, is he working I, for the police. I didn't understand that at all. They well, just kind of because they will the listen to him if he's if he's giving up facts into the underworld and and sort of giving them information. They're going to listen to that information, and I think it just takes them a while to realize that this guy is is there may be a nugget of truth in there or whatnot but this guy just really wants to talk and he doesn't even know why he's helping or hurting the cops he really has no agenda he's just throwing a bunch of stuff out there i I don't think the cops realize what his personality is like they just if someone's been arrested and done time in jail and says they're he they're willing to help them the cops are obligated to listen well i i know in the their conversations at one point he says to the one cop that you've known me since i was a kid 
Um, so they, they do have a, one. He has a relationship with one of them because he says, I, you've known me since I was a kid or whatever. And then you bring this asshole along with you and you start insulting me by not believing that I killed. So I they must have know. some sort of. I just thought it was a really. It is kind of out of nowhere. Yeah, uh, I just didn't see. I wouldn't. That at all. I wouldn't necessarily call it sloppy. Although you may be right. I like a movie where I like a movie where you don't get all the information right away, and you got to actually say to yourself while you're watching the movie, you know what? This movie's ahead of me at this moment, but I'm just going to go with it, and I will slowly catch back up to the movie. I find a lot of people that I know will not surrender to that impulse of there's many times in movies and a lot of modern films now are quite aggressive. Like we were talking uh, primer the other day. And I mean, I can't think of a movie more aggressive about that than primer. You, you have to, for the first half of the movie, acknowledge the fact that while you might know a detail here or there, you've got to just willingly go along with it. And perhaps in, chopper that like you said it might be they didn't have coverage and and they edited around it or they had to shorten the film because they wanted a short runtime but to be honest i i i liked that and i and i liked the slight disorientation in a movie that's otherwise really straightforward because the whole point of the movie is that you're getting this unreliable narration and unreliable storytelling based on his memoir so why not have a few details in there that it's not like Spielbergian man picks this up, does that logical, you know, clear, concise visual storytelling. I don't mind if it's a bit, um, you know, if there's a few pieces missing, that's kind of the point of listening to someone like Mark Chopper Reed talk. Even if you don't always understand what he's saying, he's charismatic. And I think the film is like that too. Even if you don't always follow what's going on, you want to see what happens next. Something I just uh, thought I'd throw out that came to mind because um, not too long ago we talked about public enemies on the Film Junk podcast and just the idea of um, Dillinger, I guess, as sort of a public figure. And I thought it was interesting that both these movies that we watched had elements of that. Um, I was uh, I was just checking out some information on uh, Mark Chopper Reed, and um, I guess at this point he's actually written... 10 no 11 books based on his life <laughs> he's got an album too yeah but uh i guess the first five or so were actually based on somewhat truth and then from there on in, he started writing fictional stuff based on his experiences which is kind of interesting i mean he definitely seems like a guy who knows how to market himself and uh I can't even bloody spell. <laughs> like, he must say that like five times within a two minute span. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just, from the movie, he seems like a pretty fascinating character. Um, I, I guess they're talking about possibly a sequel as well. I said something about Eric Bana. I agreed to. I saw to. something about that too. Yeah. That'd be kind of interesting. So any uh, final thoughts then on Chopper? I uh, I liked it. It was a uh, it was a good movie. It was good. Yes. <laughs> All right. No motorcycles, but that's fine. I can just uh, stick with American Chopper. Yep. So um, so I guess 
the next movie club podcast um have have we agreed that we're going to do ai and prince of darkness the two top vote getters sounds good to me i'm excited about that one that's gonna be cool we have now (laughs) all right well done so uh so you guys have probably about six weeks i'd say to uh six to 14 weeks <laughs> to, to go out and rewatch those movies and prepare for the next movie club podcast um but we'll have another poll up on the site uh shortly so head over to movieclubpodcast.com to vote and to also give us your comments on natural born killers and chopper um, hopefully on the next show we'll have uh, Marina and uh, Omar back again we'll see what happens and uh, anything else I'm forgetting to mention here guys mm, I don't think so alright well thank you everyone for listening and we will see you next time on the movie club podcast bye bye you really love me would you see my hands look It must have hurt you, it must have hurt your pride, to have to stand beneath my window, with your bugle and your drum.